If you brought your Bibles, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 9. We've been walking through, this is Matthew's account, his story of the life of Jesus. Just a few weeks ago, uh, Matthew records Jesus' Braveheart sermon, his teaching, his great sermon on the mount. If you remember, it's this incredibly tangible teaching. It's not high and lofty and, and just brainy and theological, but know that Jesus' sermon on the mount is this practical, like incredibly, it's like a hammer it's, or a screwdriver. Like he hands it to us as a tool to be used, to be practiced. He said, do this. And then last week, immediately after this great teaching, the crowds, the, the crowds say, Jesus taught with authority like we've never seen. And then the next few chapters, all the way up to the end of chapter 9, Jesus is demonstrating his authority again and again and again. And the people are amazed. And at the very end of chapter 9, we're going to pick up today, verse 35 of chapter 9 is where we're going to start. Uh, Jesus encounters a problem. Let me see if uh, let me see if you can see it. In these first few verses, uh, from chap- verse thirty-five through verse thirty-eight, it says, "Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had what's that word? Compassion on them, because they were confused and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd." Go on to that next slide. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. There's so many things that like caught my attention in these next few chapters in Matthew, but, but like I just came, as soon as I read that, I just came to a dead stop. Crowds of people are coming to Jesus He's healing every kind of disease and sickness. And like, I, I don't want you to miss, like, like he is demonstrating the authority of God in every facet of life at this point. And all of that comes to this, this crazy, weird, pinnacle moment. You see, Jesus with unlimited power of God, the ability to heal the sick and raise the dead, Jesus has this message of good news for all mankind. Jesus can extend forgiveness to all mankind. But in this moment, in these verses, Jesus realizes that he's never going to see all mankind. Think about it. Sure, Jesus is able to to feed the 5,000 and 4,000 with, with loaves and fish. But what about the rest of the world? Even traveling all the time, Jesus really only ever lived in, in a tiny corner of the ancient Near East, right? He was limited to the places his feet could carry him, and he was limited by the, the sound of his voice, how far his voice could carry over the crowd. Even surrounded by crowds of people, his voice, his touch, what he has to offer could only be received by stunningly few. Have you ever thought about that? Here he is, the great like messenger of God, son of God, come to deliver the good news of God. And he, he's only able to deliver that message to an incredibly small group of people. You see, really, the problem that you see in these verses is a problem of scale. And stunningly, painfully, if you look carefully, Jesus realizes that this 
is not a one-man job. Verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had, what's that word? It's an interesting word. He had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless. Like, like he looks out at these crowds of people and he realizes that these are sheep without a shepherd. And this word compassion is this thing that, that moves him and, and like shapes him. Uh, the word compassion literally in the Greek, if you look it up, com- compassion is like the nice like modern Christian translation of it. That word means bowels. That's what it means. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had a bowel movement. That's what it says. And what it means is, uh, uh, I know it sounds weird, like, like, like he felt it so deeply, like he had so much passion and desire and so much longing and, and wants for the people that surrounded him. Like, like he felt it deep. Have you ever just felt it in your gut? You ever had a gut feeling? Maybe, maybe that'd be a better translation. Jesus just flat out, he had a gut feeling and, and his gut was torn and wrenched because there were all of these people and yet, yet there was no shepherd for them. And it is this gut feeling that serves as his springboard to act. It is compassion that compels Jesus to find a solution to the problem of scale. And the problem is, what do I do with all of these people? How could I possibly shepherd all of these people? Yet he felt so compelled by this. Like, like, and the seed, I want you to not miss this. The seed of Jesus' work was not duty, but it was love. And he sees these people and, and is this almost this moment of like, ah. Oh, what are we going to do? I, I need to share the good news with all of these people, but like, how, how am I possibly going to share it with everyone? And so Jesus does something that we should all do. In verse 38, it says this. It says, he sa- and he invites his disciples. He says, so pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. This is a great message for us. Like Jesus faced this, this problem that's, uh, if you'll permit me, like this problem that's too big for him alone. Jesus faces this, this enormous task. And instead of giving up or cashing in the chips or, or getting down on himself, he prayed. How many of you are right now facing something too big for you to handle? follow Jesus' example. He prayed to God, and so must we. He prays, but he doesn't stop there. He prays, and then he plans. Look at the the beginning of chapter 10. In verses 1 through 4, it says this, immediately after praise, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them, what's that word? Authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. And here are the names of the 12 apostles. Um, First, Simon, also called Peter. Andrew, Peter's brother. James, son of Zebedee. John, James's brother. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the author of our book here, the tax collector. And James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who 
later betrayed him. Interesting choice. You ever thought about that? Um, a couple of things I want you to see about this list of disciples is, is honestly, this is about like the, the most diverse like calling of men you could ever imagine. Um, really, in the, in the Jewish world, in the Jewish faith, there were, there were kind of like four groups of people. Uh, there were Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and, and Zealots. And, and just stick with me here for a second. So a Pharisee would have been like a local, like synagogue church guy. Pharisees had this, like, I'll, I'll, frankly, I'll just be super honest. And Jesus doesn't have anything good to say about Pharisees in Matthew, but I would have probably been a Pharisee. It's truth. I would have worked in, in the local church. I would have pointed to God's word for everything. I would have upheld this, this oral tradition, and I would have wanted everyone to pursue like purity in everything they did and follow everything by the letter of the law. And I, and I would definitely proclaim the resurrection. So like a Pharisees were almost like local teacher, preacher guys. Uh, it really, and, and I, hate, I hate to kind of sort of defend them, but I mean, they were trying to do the right thing. Sadducees, where, where, a fa- where a Pharisee would have been like a local guy, a Sadducee would have been like the political part of like the, the Jewish world. Pharisees are local. Sadducees are like operating in the government of the temple and making big hierarchical decisions. And Sadducees were really different from Pharisees in, in the way they, they didn't accept all the oral tradition that the Pharisees did. And, and, and Sadducees really, like this is super interesting, like they rejected the idea of resurrection too. Like they didn't believe in that, which I'm like, hey, that's kind of important. Um, but they would have been more like the political side. Essenes would have been like these like, uh, uh, we think some, maybe some of the Dead Sea Scrolls were written by uh, Essenes, like, like mystics, ascetics, like faithful, like Holy Spirit uh, uh, followers for sure. And then there were zealots. And that's the one I really want to talk to you about. Zealots were exactly how we know that word today. Like uh, zealots would, would have sacrificed anything for God. Um, they were, they were patriots, but they were patriots to the kingdom of God and nothing else. Uh, let, me, let me put it this way. Like, zealots would have never said the Pledge of Allegiance. Never. Because they would have felt so incredibly dedicated to God and God alone. Like, like there was nothing else. They would have never uh, recognized the authority of Caesar or of Herod. Like, like they just wouldn't refuse that. Like, like they would never give an earthly man the title king. And, and zealots are like, like fiercely like, like loyal, like, uh, like Patriots fans, I guess. I don't know, you know, like zealots like have just like Im- immovable resolve, like fierce loyalty to God and, and like, like loyalty like that has, has no limit. And, and as long as you're defending the cause of God as a zealot, everything is permissible, including murder, assassination. Like they would have stopped at nothing to see God again become the king of Israel. All right, so why is this important? You remember that list of names? So you have Matthew, the tax collector. It's the, his gospel that we're reading. 
Matthew is associated with scum and sinners. Matthew would have been the worst of the worst of, uh, in Jewish life. He was, a, he was a traitor to the faith because he was, he was a colluder with the, the Roman Empire. He worked for the Roman Empire. He probably in the most dishonest way imaginable collected taxes. He sided with the Romans. And then if you look in this list, just a few names down, you have Matthew the tax collector, and then it says Simon the zealot. This is an incredibly diverse group of guys that Jesus calls together. Um, My guess is that Jesus probably, uh, he calmed the storm, but he probably settled more than one fist fight among them. Like, like (laughs) in any other scenario, this is is how, how big this is. In any other scenario, Simon the Zealot would have probably plunged a dagger into Matthew's heart and been proud to do it. Are you with me? So Jesus calls this like incredibly like diverse group of guys together. And it's important to note too that they're ordinary guys. Uh, how many are, are Pharisees or Sadducees? How many are religious elite? How many are, are, are trained preachers, trained in theology? They're not. They're not. I mean, they're fishermen and tax collectors. You know, these are the guys that were passed over for offices and titles and position. They, they weren't a part of the religious elite Like, he does not call heroes and noblemen. Are you with me? In in this name, in this list of names, uh, in this list of disciples, like, um, we are to see all men. Like, like that's the picture. We're supposed to see common, ordinary, everyday guys. We are, frankly, supposed to see ourselves in this list. So Jesus calls this diverse group of guys, these ordinary men. And then, don't miss this, he gives them a job to do. He gives them a work. And the work is definitely more important than the workers. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 10. I want you to see this. Jesus called these 12 disciples ordinary guys, diverse guys, he called them together, and then he does something incredible. It says, and he gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and heal every kind of disease and illness. Like in, in, uh, in verse 8, just a few verses later, like Jesus is going to tell his disciples, um, he tells them, he says, I want you to heal the sick, and uh, I think maybe I have that verse up there. Do I have verse 8 up there? No, see? Um, He's going to tell them to heal the sick. Oh, there it is. There, great. Listen to what he tells. This, this ordinary group of diverse guys, here's, what, here's Jesus' instructions to them. Listen to this. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to raise the dead. I want you to cure those with leprosy, and I want you to cast out demons, and I want you to give as freely as you have received. You think they felt unqualified? Yeah, like, you know, like, there's a limit of what I could do. I've never raised the dead before, but I guess I'll try. 
But, but don't miss that part of the very first verse. It says, Jesus gave them authority. Remember what Matthew was doing in the, in the last few chapters. He was establishing the authority of Jesus. Jesus gives a sermon on the mount and people say, wow, no one's ever talked with authority like this. And then Jesus goes through this whole list of things like establishing himself. He touches the leper. He heals the centurion's servant. Like even the, the person at the synagogue whose daughter has died, he raises her to life. He calms the storm. Jesus again and again and again proves and demonstrates his authority over disease and death. He proves his authority over the natural world and the unnatural world. He's even able to cast out demons. And in Matthew chapter 28, the big pinnacle of all of Matthew's book, it says, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. And look what he does in verse one of chapter 10. All of that authority he has, he gives to his disciples. Like, you should have just got chills down your spine right then and there. Do you see it? Jesus is, is trying to figure out this. The, remember what the problem is. The problem is scale. How do I let a whole world know the good news? How do I introduce the whole world to what God wants for them? How do I, how do I save the entire world when I'm just one man? And Jesus prays about it. And then he says, you know what? I have it. The same authority that God has given me, I'm going to give to you. <laughs> Whether you like it or not. And look what it says in verse 5 through 7. It says, Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. He says, I don't want you to go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Don't worry. They're coming. He hasn't forgot about them. But he says, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. You remember what, what started this whole thing? Remember that whole, the, that started, had the gut, such a strong gut reaction in Jesus, right? He looked at the crowds of people who are, who are helpless and hurting, and he sees sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus says, ah, I'm going to send you out to God's lost sheep. Like, 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 don't miss this. Like, he sees the answer to his problem of scale in the disciples. Like, hey, here's how we're going to do this. Here's how we're going to accomplish this global purpose. And I love that uh, he calls them apostles. This is this kind of important moment in in scripture for sure. Um, because a, a, a disciple, like, like maybe you know like the word disciple, like he called his 12 disciples. Uh, a disciple is a follower of Jesus. A, a disciple is a student. Um, like one of the ways my friend described it is like his, uh, uh, his washing machine broke in his kitchen. And so he called the repairman and the repairman came, but the repairman came and brought another guy with him right? 
And both men walked into the kitchen, and my friend said, yeah, the, the guy who was the repairman, the guy that had the skill and the experience, he just kind of stood to the back. And there was this other guy that did all the work on the washing machine with this guy that had all the skill and knowledge telling him what to do. He said, that's discipleship. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be an apprentice. And Jesus calls these men from their jobs, from their task, and teaches them his ways. This is, okay, come and follow me, right? Like that's the language Jesus used even from the very beginning to call his disciples. Come and follow me. But now that language has changed. Not disciples anymore, but apostles. And apostolos is, uh, I'm so good at Greek, you guys don't even know. Uh, I'm really not. I look it up. You can look it up too. Um, apostolos, like, like this is a different word. Uh, it, it's, it's a combination of two words. And it, apostolos means away from and send. So it, it's kind of like verse 5 kind of says, Jesus sent out the 12 sent out ones. No longer are they, they come and follow, although that will always be a part of their identity. But now they, they've come from come and follow to go. They're, they are to leave Jesus' presence to be his presence. Are you with me? He sends them out. Look at that last verse on there. Like, uh, and he, he says, he says this, this to them in verse 7. It says, here it is. While in between raising the dead and healing lepers, and try not to fight amongst yourself, in between all of that, he says, verse 7, he says, I want you to go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Remember, Matthew is a kingdom gospel. This whole thing is about the kingdom of heaven from the very beginning. John the Baptist, he, he preaches, repent of your sins, turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. If you look carefully in your scripture, the very first teaching of Jesus is about this kingdom that is near. In his, the pinnacle of his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, it says, seek first the kingdom of God. And even Jesus says, when you pray, pray for that kingdom to come and for it to come soon. In verse 35, you see that Jesus is, is traveling around through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the what? The kingdom. And now he gives that same, like, like it, Jesus becomes a herald. Uh, I think about like, like, I don't know, like medieval times or uh, like a herald is the guy, I don't know why he always wears a weird suit and a weird hat, but like the herald has a job for the king, right? The herald is sent out in front of the king to declare the message of the king. That's the herald's job. The herald isn't to go out and have his own message, but, but to proclaim the message of the king. And Jesus says, hey, that's been my job. My job has been, has been to be a herald. Are any of you named herald? That'd be weird. Sorry. Like a herald is to announce. And here's what you're to announce. It, 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 it seems a lot to me like, like what Zach Ertz did on that video at the Super Bowl, right? Did you hear that? He said this last month, this last March, I got baptized. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. 
let me tell you about the kingdom of God. So Jesus answers this question of scale by going, okay, this is more than a one-man job. Guess what? My job's now your job. I'm sending you out. And if you read carefully in chapter 10, and I don't want to gloss over this, and I don't want to miss this, but I also don't want to spend a whole lot of time here. Like there's a part of this that none of us are ready for because the job that he gives his apostles, the job that I think that he gives to ordinary men and women like us, like, like it's an incredibly difficult job. Jesus is going to say, I'm going to send you out into the darkness and disorder of the world, and you are to bring the light of, tr- of, of truth and the kingdom of heaven. He said, you're going to be like sheep among wolves. And essentially, like everything, all of the tough stuff that Jesus Christ faces, you're going to face too. Floggings and trials, arrests, hatred. And he says, but he says, I don't want you to lose heart because every time you face a tough, tough place because of the kingdom, because you're an apostle, because you're one of my followers, like every time you you face one of these tough issues, it's going to be an opportunity for you to tell others about me. And he said, I already know what some of you are thinking. Like, can you imagine the wide eyes of these disciples when Jesus is telling them this? Guess what? Everything that I've done as the son of God, you're going to do now. Go, knock yourselves out. You think that maybe they had some hesitation? Well, I don't don't know what to say. Jesus answers that too in verse 19 through 20. He says, don't worry. You don't don't even have to worry about what you're going to say. Your job is is to go because the Holy Spirit is going to speak through you. And then three times, like maybe you're sitting here right now going, oh, man, I don't know if that's me. I don't know how I feel about this whole thing. Three times in this chapter, Jesus is going to say, don't be afraid. And why do you think he says that? Because they were afraid, (laughs) right? Like, he knows exactly what we need. And he says, you are incredibly valuable to God. And finally, verse 40. Like, Like, this is kind of like the whole thing. Jesus says, anyone who receives you receives me. Like, isn't that the job of a follower, of a disciple, of an apostle, right? We don't bring the best version of ourselves. We bring Christ. So many times I've, I've met with couples and been with couples or, or been with people who are facing crisis in their life. And so many times I've sat right there going, man, I wish I had what you, I wish I had what you need. I wish I had the answers. I wish I was able to give. And then it occurs to me and, and I have this huge moment of realization of like, hey, what you need, I don't have, but Jesus does. And I can give you what he gave me. And anyone who receives you receives me, and anyone who receives me receives the Father who sent me. Like you become like these integral links in the chain. I love the story of uh, Martin Luther. Um, Martin Luther, uh, the the story goes that, that Martin Luther, like the great church reformer, you guys know who I'm talking about. He didn't play for the Patriots. Um, Martin Luther, like, uh, he had this friend who felt about the Christian faith just as he did. Like, like, 
But, but the friend was a monk. And Martin Luther and his friend, the monk, they came to an agreement. And, and the agreement was that, that Luther would go down into the dust and heat of battle for the reformation of the world. And the friend, the monk, would stay in the monastery and, and lift Luther up, uphold his hand in prayer. And so they began this way. Luther went to work in the streets and the monk went to work in prayer privately in the monastery. The story says that one night, the friend, the monk in a monastery had a dream. He saw a vast field of corn as big as the world and one solitary man was seeking to reap it, an impossible and heartbreaking task. Then he caught a glimpse of the reaper's face and the reaper was Martin Luther. And Luther's friend, the monk, solitary alone in the monastery, saw the truth in a flash. And he said, I must leave my prayers and get to work. And so he left his pious solitude and went down to the world to labor in the harvest. Remember the problem Jesus faced? It was a problem of scale. How do I share this message with everyone? The same problem Jesus faced then, we face today. Even, even here. Do you guys have that sense? How many people move to the Nashville area every single day? A hundred? Every single day. There are a hundred people or more that move to the Nashville area. It's been that way since I've lived here, basically, right? It's easy to gripe about them. They're all from Ohio or California. I don't know why that is. Have you seen that? Like, like every single day, the field of Nashville gets bigger. We have people from every background and ethnicity, from every tribe and nation and tongue. Literally the whole world is coming to Nashville. Do you have that sense? The harvest is great. The workers are few. You need to ask the Lord of Harvest not to just send workers, but to send you. One of the things we're, we're doing through the months of uh, February and March is the, is the hospitality challenge. Have you guys got your cards? Have you seen this? We just started it last week. I hope you get your cards. And for us, the hospitality challenge is uh, uh, we just want you to invest in a couple of things. We, we think they reflect the attitude of, and heart of Jesus and, and Christianity. And, and they're simple things. Like, like sometimes between the month of, uh, of February and March, we just want you to have somebody from Aspen Grove who you don't know well in your home. And we think that's, that's a great thing. And, and your home doesn't have to be like Southern Comfort or Southern Living or like it's okay. But we think it's important for you to have people around your table. And, we, and so we want you to do that with each other. But we also want you to do that with a neighbor or a coworker. And we want you to go in and to visit, like uh, visit a sick or homeless or serve the widow or the orphan or the elderly. And then like we want you, and, and this is a huge one for us too, we want you to bring at least one guest to our Easter services 
this year. We're less than two months away from Easter. I know it seems crazy, but it's true. Like, are you, are you praying for who's going to come with you already? Like, for us, like, this hospitality challenge, and I know, I know we have, like, um, Mr. Rogers on it, and, like, we, we do smile about it, and we think it's fun. Like, but, it, but, like, this is, I want you to see, like, this is more than just an exercise in kindness. It's an exercise in kingdom. Neighbor love has never been more important or needed in the Nashville-Franklin area than it is at this moment. I'm going to say that again. Neighbor love has never been more important or needed than it is now. And God has positioned us and this church and every Christian in this room to be a worker in his field, a shepherd for his sheep. And so each of us, we've got to face up to a, a tough truth, I think, that there is a harvest out there, but it'll never be reaped unless there are workers to reap it. And, and, I, and I say this with all sincerity, and I know we don't, we don't often think this way, but there's an interesting way to think about this whole kingdom idea. And, and I want you to hear this, that Jesus Christ needs you. He loves, he loves having that quiet Bible time with your, with your little coffee in the morning. He loves that. But he needs you to advance his kingdom, to advance his cause. The kingdom of God needs us. There is someone for each and every one of us, like there is someone that, that we could and should bring to God if only we would. I just want to end with these just few final words and just a moment we'll have a time of communion Oh, man, and, and I pray maybe as you take this communion and the elements of, of the communion are set on the tables, and I'll say a prayer and send you, but, but man, I, I pray maybe during this time of communion that, that you do a gut check. You remember what motivated Jesus? It wasn't some sense of, it, it wasn't some sense of duty, but it was, it was something deep down inside of him in his gut and so communion is a great place to do a gut check. Hey, do I really care about my neighbors? Do I see the field to be harvested before me? Finally, I'll just finish with these words. Followers of Jesus who claim the lordship of Jesus, no matter how ordinary you may think you are, we are all sent away by Jesus fueled by the compassion of Jesus, filled with the same authority of Jesus for the purpose of proclaiming the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus not only calls us to come to him, but he calls us to go for him. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your, for your word and its power and um, Man, God, I, I pray for the same kind of the same kind of uneasiness, the same kind of like upset stomach, the same kind of I, I pray for the same kind of gut that Jesus felt for each and every one of us. For for every person we pass on the street, for for every car in traffic next to us. Father God, let us open our eyes to the harvest. Father God, maybe there's some of us in here that, that need to repent of, of some idleness. 
Father God, I, I pray for the parents who have been idle and maybe, maybe sharing their faith with their own kids, their own family. So God, what movement you can in, in the depths of each and every one of us, wake us up to your kingdom mission. We see the world that you are bringing right to our doorstep. Father God, let us move and act and breathe for you. Give us the words to say, calm all of our fears and let us trust you. Father God, we love you. Like none of this would be possible without your, your life and your, and your death and your resurrection. Father God, help us to see that we are men and women authorized by you to deliver the good news. Father God, we love you. Thank you so much for your son Jesus. And it's in his name that everyone together says, Amen.